agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hugs the government love. The government hugs the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay, how you doing? Well, I got uh, nothing but high class problems. <laughs> there, there you go. Those are the kind of problems you oh. want to have. Excellent. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, before we uh, get started and thank our newest Patreon supporters, I want to let everyone know that we're hoping to roll out a new benefit in the podcast for supporters at the $10 per month and higher level, and that's full transcripts of episodes. And this is something that a number of you have been asking for, and we think it could be a great addition to the show for our supporters. But, of course, decent decent quality transcripts, while they're not a trivial expense, at least not on our show's budget, so... uh, because we don't want to promise something we can't regularly deliver. Our plan is to first see if uh, this results in enough additional support to make transcripts possible. And then depending on the level of support, the sort of service we'll be able to afford, because like with many things, you know, the services that produce the best, most accurate transcripts, well, they tend to be the most expensive. Um, And so assuming there's enough interest, we'll be putting the transcripts up as a separate post for each episode at our Patreon site. That's patreon.com slash politics guys so if you'd like transcripts vote with your um well, not really wallet i guess whatever electronic payment patreon venmo or paypal are willing to accept i guess is uh would be more accurate so and you can support the show on patreon again just go to patreon.com slash politics guys on venmo or at politics guys and to support us through paypal you can go to politicsguys.com slash support and so if you're supporting the show or increasing your level of support because you want the transcripts just note that in the comment when you make or increase your pledge of support in that way if it turns Turns out there's not enough support for us to provide transcripts. We'll be able to let you know and offer you a refund on your pledge. Okay, so this week also we want to thank our newest Patreon supporters, uh, Leonie and Zabra. And Leonie, one of our Australian listeners, I hope I got that pronunciation right. If I didn't, my apologies, but wrote in to say, I'm happy to support your work in some small way. I lean a bit left, but it's good to get a right-leaning perspective from sensible people. That might be you, Jay. I don't know. Um, There you go. Sensible people. Uh, Your country is in a hard political space at the moment with not a lot of middle ground, it seems. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much and thank everyone who supports the show. And this week on the show, we're going to be talking about the latest ruling on the Texas abortion law, a whole bunch of economic news, supply chain issues, the Nobel Prize in economics and the minimum wage, bipartisan legislation to bar big tech platforms from self-preferencing, progressives and the big spending bill, uh, what we're most optimistic and pessimistic about, kind of a big picture sense, and we'll also get into some listener questions. And as always, whatever we don't get to on our regular show, we will cover on our supporters-only bonus show, which was released at the same time as this. So before we get into all of that, though, we will take a quick break and then we will get started. Okay, Jay, so I said we'll start off with that Texas abortion law. Late this week, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals overturned the federal district court judge's order halting the Texas abortion law that empowers, um, well, pretty much anyone, I guess, except for the state, to file suit against anyone who performs or aids in performance 
providing abortion services to women who are more than six weeks pregnant. Now, in the very brief order, the Fifth Circuit indicated that the decision, their decision, was based on the Supreme Court's reasoning and its decision to not grant an emergency injunction, as well as the Fifth Circuit's own previous rulings. Um, the main issue here is whether or not the state of Texas is the proper defendant, as because the law in question doesn't involve the state directly in enforcement. Uh, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton has argued that the only way to challenge the law is to wait for a provider that is actually sued under the law and that Texas uh, can't be sued as an entity. Now, the two judges who voted to overturn the lower court's order were both Republican nominees, Judge James Ho, nominated by Donald Trump, and Katharina Hayes, who is a George W. Bush nominee. And the one dissenting judge in the three-judge panel, Harl Stewart, was a nominee of Bill Clinton. So, Jay, what do you make of this latest development? Um, prob- probably less than than a lot of people do, um, because this is, uh, again, we're talking about procedural rulings, and still there there hasn't been a ruling on the merits uh, of, of this law. Um, so I'm, I'm hesitant to read too much into it. In fact, really, you, you can't read much into it because there's just not much to read. Um, if the the uh, decision that came down um, on Thursday was literally four sentences long, um, and basically what it it said was, uh, we are declining to reconsider our uh, decision not to to uh, to stay the district court's uh, decision. So, and I, I think I probably said that wrong. So people can get the transcripts, and then you can wait a minute. Did he say that right? Um, but. Uh, yeah, what what happened was the district court put on an order saying, okay, the the law is not in effect. Uh, the Fifth uh, Circuit basically said, well, that order is stayed pending appeal, uh, meaning, well, it, it can be in effect uh, once we have more time to think about it. And then they came back and thought about it some more and said, well, no, it's still in effect. And as I understand that the the next step is is this case is going to uh, the Justice Department is his petition in the Supreme Court uh under the shadow docket um to get it uh heard heard there and my my sense is the result is going to be exactly the same as it was the yeah. last time yeah um and 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 it gets, it's a shame because i a lot of this i think is is used by folks to you know sort of throw gasoline on fires when i don't really think there's there's gasoline there um well that doesn't that didn't make sense uh <laughs> i don't think that it, it's um um uh the these fires are are worth worth inflaming right mm-hmm. the, this isn't the big fight um at least not yet and i i do think that i mean there there are some um it, at every stage of this um the the questions have been purely procedural on who who are the right parties uh to bring this one as you mentioned the right defendants uh, and and secondly, I think in the, the government suit, I think there's a, a, a legitimate question of the right plaintiff. Um, and can the federal government um, weigh in to overturn a state's um, statute that it it uh, it finds uh, it believes is unconstitutional, uh, absent some other um, harm or or plaintiff who who was harmed? And and again, I'm I'm a little perplexed as to why they don't have the actual right parties there yet um yeah me too there, yeah because so. i you know i want to talk about the uh, and 
certainly, Jay, you, you have a lot of experience with this. The, the grounds for enjoining uh, a law, it seems to me there are two basic things. Number one, that the, that the party asking for the injunction has a strong chance of winning on the merits. And secondly, yep. that there will be some sort of irreparable harm that will be suffered if this law is not enjoined. And it seems to me that you can say, well, that is almost sort of the case, but not really, because as you pointed out, it's like, well, what are the merits here? Well, it, if there's an issue of standing or if you're if the, you have the right defendant, well, then it isn't necessarily clear whether or not that that's the right party to sue. So it's it, what is clear is that under Supreme Court precedent, this law is absolutely unconstitutional. I think there's no doubt about that. And again, you know, I kudos in a in a very clever way to the to the drafters of this law who knew exactly what they were doing. And it looks like, you know, they are uh, they are succeeding in what what they had hoped would happen. And, you know, I I think that's uh, I think that's working the system, but they work the system to their benefit there. Well, yes and no. And I, I, you know, disagree with just sort of the tactical decisions about about the way this this bill is framed because it it is teed up um i i think very much the the pro-choice movement and and it gives them that that fuel for that fire right uh here goes the court again they're denying our rights uh let's march and and you know raise money off it all that sort of thing when in fact these are procedural rulings now i think when you get to a ruling on the merits of this um as you said if if the court follows its current precedent, um, it, it is not going to, to pass a constitutional muster. Um, also, I think most observers in this space, uh, looking at abortion law and where does it go, the much more important case is the Mississippi case that's that's pending before the Supreme Court, uh, which would be on the merits. Um, and and so I, I guess if I'm a, uh, a a pro-life enthusiast, I'm a little frustrated just by um you know what what are what am i getting out of this whole texas law yeah and let yeah. me let me address that because that's what i think i mean i disagree with both the law and the and the strategy and so when i yeah. say kudos it's very much a backhanded i appreciate right. the strategic acumen of it and i think that if you are a uh, strongly pro choice what you get out of this is even if the law is eventually overturned you get a period of time where in one of the largest states in the country, women are effectively cannot get abortions. And so from from your point of view as a pro-choice person, you say, well, that means that there were uh, X number of lives that were not or, or murders of right of. of yeah. And that's how that's how a lot of pro-choice people look at. So I, I'm I able suppose, to present, I correct. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I was thinking more more legal strategy. Yeah. Right. So, and and. Yeah, I, I suppose if if you're looking at that as every abortion that doesn't take place is a life saved, um, then then yes, uh, I, I was looking at it as the bigger picture sure. of uh, if your if your goal is to dismantle uh, Roe v. Wade, uh, yeah, this doesn't help. No, no, but but like you said, the Mississippi case I think will certainly go at least some way to dismantling Roe and the line of precedence sort of after after that, though I don't think it will completely uh, completely rip it apart and overturn it, though. That remains to be seen. Yeah, no, I, I, I would agree with you on that. And we can get into that as that that case gets closer. Yep, absolutely. Um, but 
but no, I, and so I, I guess I mean again, it's it's frustrating um, in that uh, I'm I'm not I'm not sure, you know, as you pointed out that that um, uh, are fewer abortions being carried out in Texas. Um, I, I don't know because right is is it's difficult to have those numbers and the the numbers that we have heard of a lot of people traveling. Um, yeah. So it maybe people are traveling further to get abortions. I've I've read people have to wait to get abortions in in nearby states because of you know uh, uh, the the uh, the overwhelming uh, demand apparently uh, the, you know because the Texas supply has changed. Um, so I yeah I again I I don't know how that that number actually gets gets measured out. Um, I think well, but, yeah, yeah well, a, a political we'll legal know. strategy. I still think it's. You're just firing up the base of the other side, and at the end of the day, what are you really getting um, for all your efforts? And I think we'll know, you know, in a few months when we're able to get a better sense of the statistics on those things. And there are various places that that keep track. There's the the Gutmacher, I think it's the Gutmacher Institute, and some other places. And so we'll get a sense over time. But I know that there are plenty of people on the on the pro-life right who would say, hey, if this can save, if this can, if this can, this can prevent yeah. one abortion or a handful of abortions, yeah. that's a good thing. And of course, plenty of people on the left would say, if this restricts the choice of one woman uh, and, and doesn't allow her to exercise her constitutional right, then this is, this is a tragedy. So, uh, but yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'll tell you, but going back to the, and again, maybe this is just something we're not on the ground and not paying close enough attention uh, and maybe there are some of these other cases that are bubbling up somewhere else that we just haven't heard about. Mm-hmm. I, I would think we would have. Um, you know, my sense is that an abortion provider would have standing to challenge this, um, being that, you know, hey, you are essentially depriving me of my uh, my entire business, my livelihood. Now, whether that goes to irreparable harm, sometimes that's a question, right? The courts courts typically say, like, look, if you if your problem can be fixed by payment of money later. Um, then you don't have irreparable harm and you can't get an injunction. Um, but there's there's sort of exceptions where it's like, look, this is going to tank my entire business, uh, or 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 things that you know can't be undone. You know, bell can't be unrung. Um, you know, I'm going to lose my trade secret protection, and once it's out, it's out, and then I got nothing. That that sort of thing. Um, so I, I'm surprised that that those cases from a provider haven't been brought. Uh, but- but I mean, if you're uh, the smart move, I would think would be for nobody to actually sue any of these. I mean, not that I, I yeah, yeah. You, you know what I'm saying, right? To just kind of keep yeah, it in exactly. that state. No, and, and the that the idea would be, yeah. So the the um, the provider would say, look at the chilling effect. Now, then the, the response to that is, well, look, typically a a civil chilling effect doesn't necessarily get you standing. Yeah. Um, immediately for a, a criminal uh offense it does if you think hey if i do this uh do x y or z i could be subject to criminal liability that's going to get you uh standing um to challenge it right away uh if the question is hey well you might get sued for for a couple thousand for ten thousand bucks um uh yeah it's a little more difficult but i'm still surprised that it hasn't nobody's tried that route yeah and and again maybe there are, i'm sure there's an answer and people who know more about this than i do uh, and there's there's reasons for it, but yeah, absolutely. 
Okay, well, let's move on to something entirely different and talk about uh, a whole bunch of economic news that's been, uh, well, in the news lately. On Thursday, the Labor Department reported that in the week ending October 9th, the number of people filing for unemployment fell below 300,000 for the first time since mid-March of 2020. Now, that this, would sound like good news. Yeah. Well, well, well this it's like, sort of a mixed Bye. bag. Okay. Well, let me get into some of the other. Yeah. But because this follows news, though, that employers added just 194,000 jobs in September, which is down from 366,000 jobs in August. And this represents the weakest job growth so far this year. And a lot of analysts think that, well, the Delta variant is sort of a key factor in driving this slower increase in jobs in the latest report. Now, the unemployment rate fell to 4.8%. That's down from 5.2% in August, and that continues a trend of lower unemployment over the course of 2021, but not necessarily entirely positive because the labor force participation rate, and that's the percentage of people 16 or older who are either employed or unemployed and actively searching for work, that declined from 61.7 to 61.6%. Now, that might seem small, but keep in mind that in the total adult population of around 265 million people, every one of those 0.1% decreases represents roughly 265,000 fewer people who are employed or looking for work. And Overall, right now, there are about 5 million fewer people on U.S. payrolls than there were in February of 2020, just before COVID hit. And and kind of adding into this, employers are still saying that they're having a really hard time finding workers. And so, as you might expect, wage growth is trending up. The Labor Department reported a 0.6 increase in average hourly pay in September, and that's a number that actually surpassed most economist expectations. And according to the Economic Policy Institute's analysis of government data, wages are on average 5.5% higher than they were one year ago. And with all of this going on, we are also seeing a lot of what's called churn in the labor market. Workers are increasingly really sort of leveraging this strong position that they're in by voluntarily quitting positions for better jobs, or at least what they hope will be better jobs. In August, around 4.3 million people were voluntary quitters, and that's around 2.9% of the entire U.S. workforce. This breaks a record that was set in April when around 4 million people quit their jobs. Uh, Now, I should say it's a record, but BLS only started keeping track of voluntary quits in 2001, so we don't have a ton of historical data. But of those voluntary quitters, 38% of them were employed in either the retail or hospitality industries. And finally, then, to kind of put it, I don't know, not exactly a cherry on top of all this is inflation, 5.4% for September. And that's that essentially is more than countering these wage gains. According to the BLS, uh, their most recent analysis of real, that is inflation-adjusted wages, the real wages of Americans are down nearly 1% from a year ago. So that's a whole bunch of data there. When you look at this sort of big picture of this economic data, these recent reports, what jumps out at you, Jay? Um, I'm... Uh, I- the words of the 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 uh, mid seventies poet uh, Johnny Paycheck uh, come to mind. Yeah. Take this job and shove it. <laughs> I ain't working here no more. Um, I, I I don't know. I mean, it's sort of uh, you know, Mike. For for our entire lives, uh, I've never you and I have never seen an economy like this. 
right? Uh, it has always been the, geez, well, I hope unemployment goes down. I hope there are more jobs uh, because that's always better to have more jobs so people can can fill them and, and uh, not be unemployed. Um, but I, I cannot remember a time in our history where we've had uh, this type of, I mean, you, you can say there, there are times when you have economic growth and hiring's picking up and people are looking for workers and, and so forth. Uh, but it's usually not a matter of they're looking for them and, and still not finding them. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's, it's, it's strange and troubling and, and I, I, I don't know what to make of it. Um, and, and I, I wish I had, you know, something really smart to, to add here, but other than I can tell you, from my experience uh, on the ground with with uh, clients, with um, my work with uh, uh, our local chamber of commerce, um, this problem, and also um, for those of you who follow these things, recently filed an amicus brief with the Ohio Supreme Court uh, on some of these issues. Um, the it's 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 striking because these companies are are looking and doing everything they can. They're they're. <laughs> They're paying uh, much more than they used to. They're offering all sorts of sign-on bonuses. Uh, they're offering, um, uh, you know, these, in many cases, uh, jobs are low-skill, no-skill. Uh, I know of one employer who, you know, was sort of taking, look, if you're just coming out of prison, we want you. We will train you to do this. We can, um, and they, they can't find enough people. Um, and at the same time, and we've got, um uh, again, this is this is anecdotal, but I, I feel like everyone sees it and feels it, right? I mean, places uh, uh, closing because they they literally can't find enough workers. One of the they, they you know, bar, uh, restaurant, wing place in downtown Cleveland, right by the uh, Cavs where the Cavs play and then the Indians play, uh, as recent said, look, they're closing permanently because they just can't find, or at least in you know until things change, they can't find people to work there. Uh, and this would be a place which was a, you know, hot spot, right in the middle of of, of a hot spot. Um, so I'm I'm perplexed. My my only answer, I guess, is looking at the numbers. Is there has been uh, a tremendous amount of cash put into people's pockets through stimulus, uh, through uh, now the, the the child tax credit, uh, early payments. Um, through things like the eviction moratorium, where people who might not have been paying rent for for months could have stay, saved up, and I think there are numbers to reflect that that people are sitting on a lot of cash, and because of that, they don't feel the need to run out and find a job right away. Yeah, I don't, I don't uh, think so. I'm going to push back a little bit on that. You I, don't think so? No, well, I mean, again, I'm not I, I think I know this. I'm saying yeah. this is my this is my yeah. guess, right? Yeah, I, I I think I've seen some some data, and I can't cite it right now. Uh, but I've seen some data suggest that states that ended those benefits, uh, curtailed those benefits earlier, as some states did. It, really, there wasn't a big difference in in terms of their employment uh, situation and the job churn situation. I think a lot of it is just it's just that. You know, workers are are kind of looking at not just it's not just the pandemic, but thinking, well, this is sort of an opportunity. This is an inflection point to say, wow, this is really you know working in hospitality and, and retail because those are the places with the biggest churn where there's the biggest need. It's like, wow, these are crappy jobs, and I'm being right. I'm being treated I'm being treated awfully and being asked to do more and more for less and less. And, and workers are finally starting to say, you know what, I this is this is a point where I can actually 
use some leverage. And so, I, I mean, I'm, I am not exactly full of big old crocodile tears for employers that we can't find people. Hey, pay them enough and you're going to find more than the people you need. And I understand that that means that in some instances, some small businesses aren't going to be able to afford to be able to stay in business at the wage. And, and that's, that's how markets work, right? Supply and demand, a free market economy. So I, I when it seems to me that. It, but what, what's, what's giving, what's giving these people this leverage though, to not work that they didn't, that they didn't have before. I think part of it is just it, just the extra pressure put on everyone by the pandemic and just realizing, wow, this job was bad normally, but it's way worse when I have to do it in a mask with all these other things going on and, and it more. Right risk of exposure and so i think you know a certain number of people but that doesn't that doesn't that, that that answers the question of why they're they're more more motivated to leave and do something else but what gives them more leverage what gives them more well i, I leverage think to, to to quit right? well i think there there are more people that are just opting out of the workforce entirely right because we see right. the, the labor force participation rate lower but yeah i, I mean i think Here, here's here's the thing i would do and there are plenty of days I would love to opt out of the workforce. Um, but I got bills to pay, right? Um, what, what, how, how is it that, that folks who are by, by again, by these estimations on the lower rungs of the economic ladder, what gives them the leverage to simply say, I'm going to opt out of the workforce until I find something better? Yeah. And I think, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I think certainly that in part, you you have less of an ability to do that if you have nothing backstopping you. And so I actually think this is a good problem to have. I'd actually like to see a lot more support. A high-class problem. Yeah, well, no, it's not a high-class problem. So it's a different high-class problem than what was described. I mean, yeah. I, I think... I think if if your average, uh, say, server at a restaurant or your average you know person who cleans hotel rooms or something like that, if they have... Uh, if they have some sort of option, any sort of leverage to be able to get their wages below just the, for the most part, the, the, the level, the rate they're at, at, I think that's great because those are awful jobs that, that pay far too little and ask too much. And so I am totally, in, I, I am happy with anything that, that's why I would, you know, in part, I would be very much in favor of a, of a stronger, not just safety net, but some sort of a universal basic income so people could opt out or at least have more options. I think that's a great thing. It's a great problem to have. Is it? Oh, um, sorry, I just knocked my mic over. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was so flabbergasted by that. Um, I, I do have some stats to, to, to throw in there, yeah. and I, I'm hoping I'm doing this by memory, um, but this was cited in an excellent amicus brief filed with the Ohio Supreme Court last week. <laughs> Um, they, uh, I think it was, it was Bank of America or it could be the Mercatus Institute. Um, and again, I don't have it in front of me, but they based their, they looked at the people who were receiving unemployment plus the, the $300, uh, bonus, which, um, ended in September, uh, for most places. Um, uh, there are some States, which is, which was what prompts, you know, amicus briefs. Uh, where people have gone to court saying the states cannot stop those payments or the states that stop the early payments early must now pay them back um, uh, for for a variety of reasons. Um, but that those numbers showed that for the median person on unemployment, where they were making 90 percent of their former salary on 
on, on you know this this federal state assistance, uh, and that doesn't include. Keep in mind that's part of that is before taxes because in the the um, um, uh, Rescue Act, uh, there's a provision that said your unemployment benefits up to the first uh, ten thousand five hundred dollars are tax free. So part of that's tax free compared to if you were working, it would be all be taxed. Um, I, I think that's it, it's a it, it's tough to argue that there aren't incentives out there not to to go to work and and even if it's a crummy job i guess is it the government's business to incentivize people not to work at crummy jobs or is it their uh incentive to let people work at, at crummy jobs and work their way out of those crummy jobs right well, not everyone can and i think it's good that there is some pressure on employers in those so-called crummy jobs to to have to pay more and provide better conditions but it's not just that it's also for instance uh there uh during the pandemic according to data i, I just pulled up here, uh, 3.6 million people retired during the pandemic, and that's around 2 million or so more than expected. So there's a big hole right there. And you can, uh, I think just for some people who are in a better position, you know, you sure. can say, well, I'm about at that point. Maybe I should just go. And so, I, I, I mean, I yeah, understand. No, I, I get, I get that. I, I think that, I think there's, there's something to be said there that there were a lot of early retirements of and people who just said, "Yeah, forget it. This is a this is a good enough time. I was going to wait a couple more years, but no, I'm out now." So yeah, exactly. And then, what you know, I should say that the employment part isn't the only part of this. There's also the inflate. I mentioned the inflation uh, a- aspect of things, and of course, uh, when you have when you have uh, employers having to pay workers more, that can potentially contribute to an inflationary spiral because how are they going to how are they going to pay for those wage increases well they might be able to eat part of them or you know soak up part of them but part of them are almost certainly going to be passed on in the form of higher prices and uh, and we have that we also have that famous saying about inflation too much money chasing too few goods and here's where we have the supply chain issues Coming into place, right? Because of course, now that uh, we we see all kinds of backups at at ports and in in places in China, and really with truckers throughout the system, and so you have all of these things together, which is sort of pushing this this unusually high inflation. Though I still tend to think that this is an unprecedented thing, as you pointed out, something we've never seen. And my sense of things is that. Well, number one, it seems like the supply chain issues are actually starting to abate slightly. If you take a look, for instance, uh, yesterday I took a look at, as I often do, uh, ocean freight container rates. They're actually, they've peaked and they're slightly on their way down. Uh, But uh, so we're starting to see some indicators that this might be an on its way back. And which is why I tend to think that a lot of this is just going to sort of shake itself out and that it's important to not necessarily hit that panic button and do anything, you know, uh, do anything major before we kind of give this a chance to shake out. Because of course, you know, even though Delta is in decline, we still have a, you know, significant, a significant pandemic that has some uh, really, really major consequences still. Well, here's here's my my criticism of that approach is is look I agree that sooner or later this all shakes out. Um, that's really kind of sums up how markets work, right? Yeah. Um, sooner or later it all shakes out. The difficulty is how long does does it does it take to shake out and who's harmed in the way, and are there government policies that are preventing it from shaking out sooner? Uh, and that's that sort of 
what what troubles me is I think a lot of this government intervention is what's driven uh, the inflation problem. If you say, look, I think it would be great if people can voluntarily quit their jobs and then companies will have to pay them more. Okay, that's 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 super. Uh, so the government subsidizes people to to quit their jobs or make it easier for them to take time off or reconsider or do whatever uh, and exercise more leverage against their employer to get uh, more money uh, or, or, or find a better career. But isn't there another factor uh, here? I mean, the factor of all this, if all this were happening in normal times, I think you'd have a much stronger argument. But I think something that needs to be considered is why this happened. And in part, this happened because literally people going to many of these jobs, especially earlier on before there was, you know, a vaccine, this literally could cost people their lives. And so that's a that's a pretty significant factor. And so I, we need to keep that into. And that's still the case. I mean, certainly, you know, vaccines are are, are far more widespread and we have a majority of Americans now, I believe, who are vac- vaccinated. But there's still uh, a major health risk involved. And so that's why I think I get what you're saying. And I agree that to a certain extent that government policy has driven this. But we have to think about what what the reasons for that policy was. And in part, it was, you know, to protect the, to protect the health of uh, uh, hundreds of millions of Americans. And I think that's a good trade-off. Yeah, um, well, yes, no. I mean, part of the policies weren't necessarily to protect the health of Americans. It was to protect uh, the economy, right? And, and early on in this, um, when we're, you know, the spending fire hose, I sort of said, look, this is the emergency. This is the fire. Yeah, we got to put it out. Um, I think it's a harder argument to make now that the fire is still burning uh, or is still as severe as it was uh, in March or April of last year. Uh, but the fire hose is still on. And, and I think that's that's the the problem. Right? Well, the it's, fire hose is, is on not as much. It's, it's very difficult for it to stop. Well, I mean, it's not but with the with the job, with the jobless benefits, with those ending in, in, in a lot of places, those extended, those extended benefits. And then, of course, you know, we just had uh, it's not like it's I mean, Delta came and, you know, everyone thought, oh, well, we're going to be fine. Then Delta or Delta comes in. Now we're just starting to see that really on the decline. So it's not like everything's hunky been hunky dory for a while. And so I, I get what you're saying. And certainly at some point government needs to pull back. I think where you and I disagree is just uh, in terms of when that happened, you would have liked to have seen more of it happen sooner. And I'm more inclined to say, let's, let's keep it going for a little bit longer is, is my yeah. sense of where we're. And, and, you know, there's, there's sort of a weird thing that we we've hinted at before, but there, there's a more of a conservative aversion to inflation than there is uh, on, on the liberal side. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for reasons I've never well, I understand the conservative reasons, but I've never understood liberal. Because if, if you look at the numbers that you cited when we were doing the intro, the, the problem with this inflation is real wage growth, while wages are going up, real wage growth as, as compared to inflation is actually going down. And that hurts the, the people on the lowest rungs of the economy. And, and to me, that's 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 the problem. That's what I'm saying. Well, let's let's have this shake out. Well, you know, we were told six months or so ago that, well, look, the inflation is transitory. Uh, this is all going to pass pretty soon. And you and I even had sort of a wager of where are we going to be at the end of the year? Um, as looking pretty good for me on this. Um, I'm, 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 I'm concerned. I'm, I'm not sure mathematically if you can win the bet at this point. 
Well, yeah, um, I wanted to talk about that. But in terms of you mentioned liberals and inflation, I would say that I wouldn't characterize it quite as you did. I would say that that liberals, uh, people of the left tend to be less inclined to believe that borrowing or that spending will increase inflation to the extent that conservatives believe. And I think certainly the last Really, and since the nine, my wager. Well, really, since the <laughs> nine. Well, hold on. Really, since the nineteen eighties, if you kind of take a look at that, I think that liberals have the the better part of that argument because even with the point at which we're at, the point of the debt ceiling now is somewhere around twenty eight point something trillion dollars. You know uh, that that still treasury rates are ten year treasuries are at super low rates, so that the inflationary fears of many conservatives, the long-term inflationary fears, have not yet been shown to be real. And then, of course, there are the modern monetary theory people. I'm not one of them, but that's certainly a phenomenon largely of the left who believe that that's just not a worry, uh, essentially, at all. Now, as to the specific bet, I think you're right that now when we when we initially talked about this, I, I maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think that this was maybe pre- uh, Delta emergence, and I felt much more strongly that things would be back to around two percent, you know, under three percent, certainly by the end of the year. But yeah, I think you're right. That, that was, seems I was predicting five, I believe. That that seems yeah. That that seems yearly inflation unlikely yeah. now. And I think as of as of this month year for the year, I think it's somewhere five six five nine. It depends on what measure you look it depends at on now. How you count it now? Yeah. The but the yeah. Fed looks at, they don't look at the CPI, the CPI rate from, from September, 5.4%. The rate that the Fed looks the the peg to that 2% inflation target is something called the PCE inflation rate. That tends to run a little lower. It's at uh, a, like 4.5% right around there right now. So, And, and in, fact, in fact, then also in the CPI, even there are things that are factored out. Yeah, um, there, there are little energy, differences in terms of how they... Is, well, you can yeah. look at CPI with energy in and out. There are various ways to look at it. But what you and I have been looking at uh, is in the CPI. That's what we kind of pegged our predictions to. And so uh, I think you're absolutely – I would be shocked right now at this point if the CPI in uh, December, just you know, or by January, were you know, under uh, 4%. But I think – I'll make a new prediction, and this one will maybe be on the record if we're doing transcripts on the record. <laughs> exactly. But, that's why you But, but I'll say, yeah, exactly. That helps. I mean, sometimes it does help for us because I think, what did I say exactly? So this will be good um, if it works out. But anyway, here's my prediction, Jay. By mid-April, so six months from now, okay, which I think is a good you know, area to shoot from, we will be under 4% inflation. And by mid-July, so nine months from now, we'll be under 3%. And uh, I think that's that's what really, if we're looking forward politically to the midterms, that's kind of a key a key point, right? Because that's the point at which people really start kind of paying attention to a certain extent. So what do you think about those predictions of mine? So, okay. So just so we're clear for the transcript, yep. um, you're talking uh, by July of next year, annualized by, inflation, by right? April, the, which is, yeah. Yeah. By April, I'm not saying by, by mid-April, so six months from now, April okay. 16th. I think that the CPI, the inflation rate, will be under 4%, and that by July, so nine months from now, it'll be under 3%. Okay. A annualized for, for April to April, year over year, or, or January 22 to April 22 annualized? 
uh, I think I'm going to follow say, me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think, well, well I, I might, I might agree with you on the second piece that in between January and April, if you annualize the inflation rate for those four months, it might be under 4%. Uh, you over year, I'm going to say, no, it's still going to be five. So, um, hmm. you know, I'm not, I'm not you got your calculator out there. Well, man. no, no, I'm not, I'm not actually sure about that. So I'm going to have to actually think a little bit more about that because I want to be precise in exactly uh, what I am predicting. So let's, yeah, because I, I'm, I, part of my, and, and now again, this plays into CPI and how you measure it, but my sense is uh, everyone is going to be walloped by high energy costs this winter. And that's going to continue. Um, through, uh, you know, through early spring next year. And, well, I, you know, I think there's, I th certainly think that that's possible. I'm trying to see whether um, it looks like that the BLS CPI number they report is uh, annualized uh, year, year to date. It looks like the number here. Well, it won't yeah. change. Um, yeah, well, so well, year to date, like we're now we're sitting at whatever five six well, five nine. Well, we'll we'll get we'll get back we'll get back to that. Yeah. But I I will say that I will say that the number the number that is reported the, the headline number that is reported by BLS, however it is determined, which right now is at five point four percent. I'm saying that number will be under four percent by April and will be under three percent by July mid July. Okay, that and I'm going to take I'm, I'll take the over on both those. Okay, so. sounds good. Sounds good. Now we have it on the on the record. You know, I also wanted to ask you about how you see the infrastructure and reconciliation bills as well as Fed action playing into this. So let's start with infrastructure, because it seems to me that the infrastructure bill certainly can be important in the long term. when we're talking about supply chain issues and so forth and and getting things, getting goods to market. But it won't be really any immediate help. And I would think between that and the reconciliation bill, a lot of people on the right would say, well, this is the worst time at all to do to add trillions of dollars to the economy for exactly those reasons. That would be my my sense. Though so I would I would argue that part of that is mitigated because, of course, once you approve that spending, it still takes quite a bit of time for that spending to hit the system. And we're talking about money over the course, not of a year, but over a decade. And so the yearly additional cost won't be a lot. So I don't really see, given the size of the economy, I don't really see even if both of these things go through by the end of the year, which I expect they will, and add, say, another two and a half trillion dollars, three trillion dollars in new spending that I think would be the, the top line over a decade. I don't really see them contributing a whole lot really significantly to what we're seeing right now. Um, again, that's, that's sort of, you sort of summed up my point earlier. That's, that's exactly what I would, would believe is that if you have more of this money, uh, in the pipeline, it's just going to exacerbate the problem. And the fact that it is paid out over time, uh, means that this inflation is less transitory, uh, right? That, that, that inflation still will be high in April and July of next year. Uh, and maybe even in December of, of the year after that, as, as more of this money keeps getting pumped into the system that, Ideally, right, if the economy is, is revving back up, um, uh, you will, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be, be firing on all cylinders, which will be even more inflationary. So, yeah, that's, that's my, I'm, I'm sticking with my, my forecast okay. there. Um, uh, well, I will yeah, say, to, to I me, will it say. Seems, it just seems it's, it's the absolute most, you know, if, if hey, we're, we're concerned about this uh, inflation is really ramping up. Um, 
let's pump more money in the economy. That, that would seem to be the absolute wrong thing to do. Yeah, I, I will say again that, uh, you know, conservatives, fiscal conservatives have been uh, talking about fears of runaway inflation for, well, for generations now. Those yeah. fears have not come to come to be. Uh, and I think that well, while the, well, let me, let me the just, 1970s. Well, yeah, but I'd like to say, well, that's more than a generation ago. You're showing your okay. age, Dave. But, right. <laughs> but, but no, I, I think what, that's what that's what scared the hell out of us. Yeah, I, I think, I <laughs> and think here we are again. That, well, no, see, that's what I think. That's why I think you're wrong. You're there. I think there's almost kind of like a weird sort of like. Shannon Freud is sort of not really because it's like, well, this is awful, but see, didn't I tell you so kind of thing? Yes, well, I, that's I think, exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, but I think you're wrong. Yes, it's I awful. think you're wrong. Yes, I told and, you so. no, but I think you're wrong. I think the right is generally wrong about this. And we will look back a year from now and we will say, see, uh, all of us on the left will say, see, inflation has come back to its kind of typical sort of thing that it's been for the last generation or so between two or three percent. And all of you conservatives who were so freaked out about runaway inflation were totally wrong. And so that's my prediction. That's my longer term prediction. A year from now, you and I will look back and I'll say, I told you so, Jay. We'll look back and laugh at this. <laughs> One of us will, anyway. Okay, um, let's move on. Uh, I thought it would be, oh, before we do move on, though, we should take a quick break, and uh, we will be right back after that. Okay, so, Jay, I thought it would be a good sort of segue from our last story to talk about this year's Nobel Prize in Economics, which was recently uh, awarded. One of the three winners this year is labor market economist David Card, who's best known for his influential early 1990s work on uh, the minimum wage. It found that increasing the minimum wage didn't lead to job losses, which was a finding that at the time was very much contrary to the conventional wisdom that minimum wage hikes were well, essentially job killers. And since then, there have been a growing number of economists who have come to view minimum wage increases with greater favor, less distrust than in the past, um, though I should point out very much close to recent times, March of 2021, there was a meta-analysis in the journal Economic Systems of 588 research articles on the minimum wage dating uh, around the world from 1900 to 2020, and that's about as widespread of a research uh, review as you're going to find. That review found that in developed countries, at least, there was a relationship between minimum wage increases and lower employment, but it was small, but it was also robust in the author's words. Now, the Congressional Budget Office, uh, they've calculated that a national $15 per hour minimum wage would result in the loss of around 1.4 million jobs over the next four years. But at the same time, it would lift around 900,000 people out of poverty. Um, on the other hand, though, a recent review of the evidence in the winter 2021 edition of the Journal of Economic Perspectives concludes that while there is some level of the minimum wage that would increase that would that would increase unemployment, like I don't know, 15, 20, 25 dollars an hour, we're not there yet. And to me, Jay, based on all this, it seems like, well, the benefits of at least a somewhat higher minimum wage outweigh the potential costs. And to me, considering that the federal minimum wage of seven twenty-five an hour, that hasn't been increased since 2009, it's over 12 years ago, 
and also the fact that 15 states don't have a higher state minimum wage, it seems to me it's reasonable to both raise the federal minimum wage and to index it to inflation. And, uh, you know, I, okay, maybe $15 an hour is too much too soon, but I'd certainly like to see, I guess, what I'd call a smart federal minimum wage that would be maybe based on the cost of living in specific areas uh, and still maintaining the current exemptions in the law for workers under the age of 20 during their first 90 days of work. So basically kind of summer jobs for kids that that mostly fits into. And there are also exemptions for full-time students and student learners. So that's kind of where I land on this. Uh, And I wanted to get, like I said, in light of this Nobel Prize uh, in economics, I wanted to get your take on this. Well, the the meta uh, study you you pointed to that sort of it sort of it's like saying um, you know the the studies point to a link between the Pope and Roman Catholicism. Um, yeah, uh, I I think something to, else to consider is how many people at this point are are the things that we consider minimum wage jobs, right? Your greeters at Walmart and so forth. Are they even paying minimum wage anymore? Um, I don't think they are, according to the signs that I see posted everywhere. No. Um, uh, so I, 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 my question would be, do we need more government intervention to pump yet more money into the economy uh, at this, you know, while, we, while we've got this in, inflationary time? Now, again, I'd be, I'd be sort of opposed to more government mandates into the market, even in the best of times. Uh, but, but raising the minimum wage now, when market forces are already raising it significantly um and government intervention is already raising it significantly uh i i think would be a, a terrible idea uh the other something you mentioned you hinted at this sort of and and i think the the, the sort of the the carve outs in in the proposal you mentioned are are good because the typically the folks who are are locked out of jobs by the minimum wage is people who may or may not enter the labor force in the first place. It's it's kids, it's young adults getting that first job, which is important to build experience, to build you know the soft skills, that sort of thing that that uh, people talk about. And I, I think that's that's a uh, an issue. And this is something going back to the um, unemployment stuff, the numbers you talked about of uh, states didn't see states that ended uh, pandemic relief uh, uh, early. Uh, didn't see a change in overall employment. Uh, to some extent, that's correct. But what happened was really interesting. Uh, and again, you can read about it at the, in the Ohio Supreme Court docket. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's not like I get paid for any of that anyway, right? right? If you, you read the brief, don't read the brief. It's not like I Absolutely. make any extra money. But but I, I'm I'm just saying it's it's better articulated there. Um, the what they found in these states were while the overall labor number stayed the same. What was happening was you had many more teens and people under 21 who could not uh, uh, qualify for unemployment stepping into the labor force and taking these jobs. And in the states that that uh, did not end it um, early, you or I'm sorry, the states that did end it early, uh, you did not see that as much. I, and I'm just saying, I, I think that's that goes to the makeup of, of the labor force. And when you do an across the board um uh, raise or increase in minimum wage. Uh, I think you are locking some of those those people off of the the early ladders. Yeah. Um. I, and 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 I. So and, and so I guess go, going back to the the other piece on this. Um. Uh. In in terms of cards earlier work. Um. 
uh, in historic work is, is there a link? Something else to, to think about is technology in that people are now probably, not probably, I'd say definitely, easier to replace um, than they were 20, 30 years ago, right? I mean, it, it's uh, how many how many uh, cashiers are there at the grocery stores uh, now uh, compared to the, how many there were 20, 30, 30 years ago now that we have the self-scanning, right? Right. Um, are, are, you know, there are many fast food places that are talking about, you know, because of the labor shortage and just costs in general, I suppose, going to more, you know, just electronic just, kiosk. Kind of accelerating what we've already been seeing, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what, what I'm saying is, is, you know, you raise minimum wage. Uh, it used to be your only choice was, look, you got to hire people, you got to hire people. But now companies can make the the decision of well, look, if I have to keep paying minimum wage, um, uh, and it keeps getting higher, uh, maybe I pivot uh, to more machines. Yeah, and I certainly think that's, that's yeah, an option yeah. that wasn't an option in say you know, 1985. Yeah, and and there are certainly big up there can be big upfront costs, and that's something that employers would naturally weigh moving to a more automated system. And that's but no, I, I mean I think that's an important thing to. To keep in mind, which is why I don't think it's it makes much sense to blindly just say, you know, $15 an hour across the board or what have you, because these are important considerations. But, but I think, again, if well, if you believe and maybe you don't believe that there should be a minimum wage at all, I, and if you if you could, would you just eliminate minimum wages across the board? Hmm. I suppose that there probably ought to ought to be some sort of uh, floor. Okay, and that let, let's start from there because let's start from that point some, of agreement. Some basic floor, and I, I, I look, I concede that. Um, well, here, here's um, where I think we can build, or, or just on the basis of look, we're we're so far down the road. This is yeah, it's yeah. part of our but economy I, baked in at this point. But it seems to me that what would make the most sense if if there's if there can be broad bipartisan agreement, or at least some bipartisan agreement, that there should be a floor. Then the question is, well, how should that floor be established? And, and it seems to me that that's where kind of like one number, whether it's, you know, 15, 10, 15, 7, 25, what have you, that's a static number. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I think, you know, you would you would agree that just having one overall number that's the same in in Biloxi as Biloxi as it is in Boston makes right, makes no sense. Right. Because. There are different factors, which is why I think yes, and yes, and no. But I mean, if if you consider um, the economies of, of those places, right? Uh, someone who you know uh, is is working in Boston, minimum wage or not minimum wage, is still going to be making more than someone uh, in in Biloxi right, on because, average. Well, because cost of living is going to be higher yeah. too, though. So I mean, you can make a you can make a there are a lot of there are a lot of maybe higher paying jobs, say in San Francisco, but you know, good luck being able to actually afford living there where you go for you know where you work. So, and, and that's what I'm getting at, saying that at least at least it seems to me it's time to say, well, if 725 made sense in 2009, a lot has changed. You know, the real that 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 real value, if we adjust that for inflation, it should be more. And so, I would think that the very least, the minimum wage should be pegged to two things. Number one, uh, inflation. And number one, I would say cost of living in, well, specifically to various areas. For instance, 
I mentioned this before, I think, on the show, MIT has put together a thing called a living wage calculator. And, you know, it concludes that for, say, a working adult with no kids in Cincinnati, where I live, living wage is thirteen thirteen per hour. Uh, but in, New, in the New York metro area, it's $20 per hour. And in San Francisco, it's almost $23 per hour. And those things matter. And that's why I think those those things need to be kept in mind and be part of policy as opposed to just some static number that doesn't change. Do you, do you think what let me ask you this what, what effect do you think subsidizing workers in places with higher costs of living will do to the cost of living in those places you're well you're so you're so you're saying that if like in say San Francisco if we if we base well it wasn't really subsidizing those workers it's just requiring employers oh, we're to requiring pay them someone more. else to subsidize yeah. them. see I think I think the cost of living issues are much more related to to zoning and and gentrification and, and those sort of things I mean if you take a look at local zoning laws and just the horror that that elites of both liberal and conservative have of lower income housing being in their area and building building housing for people who are not like us you know that's i think that's a much bigger that's that's a much bigger aspect of that sort of thing when you when you look at that kind of mixed mixed use mixed mixed income housing oh people hate that man you know we can't have i'm I'm over you know this always bugs me especially on the left because you have these people or these you know liberal advance all these causes for the people it's just we don't want to live with the people or anything like that so i I think that's a much bigger factor i would tend to agree with you that a lot of the housing problems uh particularly in in places like san francisco are are because of uh the inability to build anything new um now i i I disagree with you on whether it has to be low income, medium income, whatever. I think I think supply is supply, but um, that's that's another conversation. And I would also agree that to some extent there are places uh, like, uh, you know, New York City, like San Francisco, like Seattle, uh, where just geography, right, uh, makes uh, space at a, a premium, um, raises the cost of living. Um, there's just only so much land to build on, right? When you're when you're on an island or a peninsula, or or you know, have have those those limitations. Or, um, but but my my point is still that in those places that would have some natural inclination to inflation, both because of their peculiar geography and, and limitations on on space and housing, um, plus whatever governmental uh, limitations on on housing or building. Uh, is it a good idea to necessarily pump more money into those? Because w- what's going to happen? Well, the rent's going to go up. Well, the, the well the rents the rents will go up. Well, the rents may or may not go up. It really depends on the uh, how much that would actually. Uh, what sort of inflationary pressure that would have. And of course, if the rents, I think for a lot of these people working in these areas, they live in outlying areas and have to drive considerable areas because they can't even afford to try. I mean, the median house price in San sure, Francisco sure. is is well outside of what somebody who is, say, cleaning offices and, you know, some San Francisco business are, is going to be able to afford. So I don't know if that's going to have that much of an effect, really. And I think, again, that you have to balance these two things. You can make, I mean, you know, again, if if if, if there were no minimum wage, you know, that, that would be less of a pressure. But then people would, would have a harder time working at a job that paid them sort of a living wage. So I appreciate what you're saying, but but I think it's more of a matter of degree, really. And it's like it's not that you dis- entirely disagree with me if you if you say that, well, I do think there should be some sort of floor. 
No, and again, I would say that there's ought to be some sort of floor to prevent um, people from from being abused, right? From from really being taken advantage of. Uh, and I, I, so yeah. But to me, I think the bigger question is how many people are really at that floor right now in these these places that you're talking about. Um, my sense, probably not a, a lot, but still some. I mean, certainly some. Um, and I think it would still be an inflationary pressure on that. And, um, you know, you did, I, again, I'm, I'm just going back to, uh, the old school sort of, sort of sense of the, the more money you keep pumping in, uh, uh, to these systems, uh, it's, it's like a sponge, right? I mean, the, they, they will, it will absorb the, the additional money. I mean, you could, I could make the same argument for, um, uh, student loans and, and the cost of college. Right. Uh, the the more the more money we make available, the the more tuition goes up. Uh, that's that's just kind of the economics of it. And I think the so yeah I, yeah. Well, I, I I'm, I'm not I'm not I'm not going to win a a Nobel Prize in economics. No, don't. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> no, but I, but I will win. But I will win uh, all of our wagers. So let's put it that okay, way. Okay. Well, so. there, there you go. I mean, because this is the nice thing about this is that we will be able to come back three months or sorry, uh, six months, nine months in a year from now. And we will be able to see which one of us was right about these things. Not that the minimum wage, the federal minimum wage is going to be increased at any point during that period. I would be stunned. Here, here's a, here's happened. a, here's a quick question for you. Yeah. I mean, and, and a good one. Um, is so look the the good people of San Francisco uh and New York um I would expect uh I mean there has not been I shouldn't say New York there's been Republicans uh, elected in the last 20 years but um why don't they just mandate their own minimum wage well in some the places state of California I mean I mean yeah, in many they cases, do they, in many right? cases yeah they do in yeah. many cases in fact what recently Florida I think was the latest one that they approved a over time a hike up to a $15 an hour minimum wage so yes yeah, states do you know can do that certainly and 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 some have though as I mentioned there are 15 that haven't raised so I guess you're saying that if it has to be done uh, then it should be done at the at the state level as opposed to at the federal level. Right. Why would we do it at the federal level and and introduce those inflationary um, uh, push in in Biloxi um, if we don't have to? Yeah, and I think a, a lot of folks would say that. Well, that if if the if the goal for a minimum wage is to avoid worker explo- exploitation, uh, then. That shouldn't matter whether that worker lives in uh, lives in Mississippi or Massachusetts, basically. And so, do you think here? Okay, let me let me play this out a little bit more. Um, do you think it is harder to get by from a cost of living standpoint uh, at a, a lower minimum wage job in Biloxi than it is in San Francisco? I think, and I, I don't know what the minimum wage laws in San Francisco, but I, w- I would certainly expect. That, yeah, it is harder to get by at whatever that minimum wage is. Right. in san francisco than it is in biloxi yeah i would expect so yeah. which to and, me is just an my, argument for raising point, it more in san francisco but that's another story so. right i've never been to san francisco i have been to biloxi actually um well, yeah i'm just a reverse <laughs> i've been to san francisco but not the biloxi so there you go it's us in a nutshell um, but no it, i guess I, I my final um point would be and look you you have all these uh progressive uh state legislator legislatures and state and uh, city council people or ombudsman i think they call them in san francisco am i correct um there's a different word 
Uh, no, uh, I know the word you're. I, I know the word you're looking for, and I'm I'm blanking on it. But yes, in, in, no, in Chicago they're aldermen, um, supervisors, but, maybe board of supervisors. Yeah, that yeah. that might be it. Yeah, um, but regardless, they they've got uh, they got the deck stacked, right? If if you want to uh, want that uh, hike the minimum wage in those places, those you got the people in place to talk to, um, and have had those people in place to talk to for the last thirty years or so. Yeah. Well, I will say in, in San Francisco, I just looked it up. Their minimum wage is sixteen thirty-two an hour, and that actually is right. tied to inflation. So I'm, that's that's yeah, yeah. But but yeah, does that so, sixteen and, and 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 yet and yet the crisis persists. Hmm? And, and that's what I'm. That's my point. Is so look, they have they have administered this the remedy right in San Francisco. Um. Yet the disease seems to be keep getting worse. The disease being uh, unaffordability, people not being able to to afford to yeah, live. Yeah, and, and I think there are a lot of factors behind that. Right. But part of it is just demand, right? Because there are a lot more people who want to live and work in San Francisco than in Biloxi. Biloxi is lovely. Well, but that's just the fact of the matter. Yeah, no, I mean, no, the, the, the markets no, are right. Like, uh, the consumers like, are like, people are speaking. And I also say that you know you, you make that comparison. Well, the minimum wage. Mississippi's one of those states with the seven twenty-five an hour minimum wage. And even I mean, you know, that's San Francisco's minimum wage is more than double that. So I'm not so sure that I necessarily would agree, at least offhand that it costs more than twice as much necessarily to work in San Francisco. Now, it depends on where you live, certainly, and housing prices, but there are a lot of factors that go into that. So, yeah. But clearly, right. uh, I think the, the bottom line here is that while you wouldn't do away with the minimum wage entirely, you probably, it sounds to me, would say, let's just keep the federal minimum wage at seven twenty-five, not mess with this, and let the states do what they want. Yeah. And I would point out that the places where the minimum wage has been increased most rapidly at, and it is at its highest are the places that still suffer from this this unaffordability uh, problem that the minimum wage was uh, this is supposed to cure. Well, I would not. Now, I'll say it wasn't supposed to cure that. I think that would be a mischaracterization. Ameliorate. Uh, to to a certain to a certain extent, yeah. But again, there, I think there are much larger factors. And and like I said, I know. To a lot of people, zoning law is one of the most boring things in the world, but so incredibly important when it comes to affordability or in some places, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. rent control and yeah. things like that, which are just, yeah, problematic to say the least. But anyway, I, I know you'd agree with me on that because there's sort of government interfering with the with the work of the free market and you hate that as a general rule. I so hate it. Yep. There we go. Anyway, let's on that hateful note, why don't we why don't we and actually, you know, we could end with some recommendations. We haven't done recommendations in a while, Jay, I don't think. We did them last week. Did we do them last week? What did I yeah. recommend? Did I recommend Or two weeks ago? Okay, maybe two weeks, maybe that I said I said, yeah, watch foundation on well, Apple that's TV, right. which is good. Yeah. That's right. Well, let's do some more recommendations. What do you say? Okay, you you go first. I got to think a little bit. Okay. I will recommend uh something that I just finished watching actually. It's a it was a limited run series on Netflix called The Chair with uh Sandro, who most people I would imagine know from Grey's Anatomy, which I've never actually seen. Um but uh I I like her a lot. She was in uh what's it? Killing Eve, which is awesome. But this is about a fictional sort of uh, prestigious small liberal arts school and uh the kind of you should like this jay it has a bunch of stuff about 
protesting left-wing kids, virtue signaling. And uh, I, I like because I'm an academic, and I always am interested in how academics are portrayed. And it's always whenever you see them, they're in these offices that have like a more wood, like an entire forest was destroyed. And I was like, I've never in my life seen an office like that even. You know, it's much more likely to get cinder block or, or, or sheetrock than you are wood paneling. <laughs> you have like the soul like, like a little light bulb hanging exactly. from the ceiling. Yeah. But, but it's interesting because I think the reason I thought it was interesting to kind of take a look at sort of this cancel culture stuff. And, and we've talked about this before. So I think people on the right will enjoy it, but a lot of people on the left will enjoy it, I think as well. Uh, uh, but also it always amuses me because I think the people who write for these shows and produce these shows are almost exclusively elites. And so their, their idea of college is that sort of idea. And my experience, I've taught in non-elite and gone to non-elite schools my entire life. And I know that that's the college experience of most Americans who go to college. And it's just so very different from this fakey sort of thing that you see on TV. But for all that, it was a really enjoyable thing. I think it's like six or eight episodes, uh, a lot of fun. And I, I enjoyed it quite a lot. So that's my recommendation this week, the chair. Okay. So I, I have not seen it. I, I have heard good things though. Um, uh, about it um oh i might have to pass on a recommendation i'm I'm really just sort of um reading anything yeah good lately i don't know so no, no not really no um <laughs> all right well, well you, you you can recommend uh, that I, kind of it's been that kind of week i hear um, there's an a brief so no, there's I, a brief I, to the ohio supreme court that that that's really people good. are talking about you know <laughs> Yes. All right. Well, well, on that kind of not exactly recommendation, we'll close. Now, there are some things we didn't get to uh, about that legislation that was introduced bipartisan, actually, to bar tech companies from self. Uh, what's it? How? What's the term again? Self-preferencing. You got to get that term right. Uh, sort of some also some dissension in the Democratic ranks about progressives between progressives and centrists on the final shape of that reconciliation bill that's not going to be anywhere close to $3.5 trillion and people putting a lot of pressure now, especially on Senator uh, Sinema to kind of change her views on that. And if that's a well, good to idea. go to the bathroom in peace, Mike, you know, there you go. Uh, and also we're going to get into kind of, again, go back and look at a big picture, look at what are the things that Jay and I are, when we look at American politics, the things that we feel that we're the most pessimistic about and the most, optimistic about for kind of the longer term future. We're going to get to all that and maybe get to some listener questions as well if we have time in the bonus show, which should be available to you. Well, right now, as you hear that, and if you would like to get the bonus show and you're not a supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys and you can sign up. Or if you'd like that bonus show, but you can't afford right now to financially support us, totally not a problem. Send me an email, Mike at politicsguys.com and I will get you set up. And remember, if you would like transcripts, we're going to be, we're hoping to offer those at the $10 a month or more level. And uh, if we get enough pledges of support for that, we will make that happen starting with this episode. Uh, we hope so. Let us know about People could get together with their friends and have dramatic readings. You, know, you could like put on the show sort of. Be, that would be so deeply weird, but kind of could be fun. I don't know. Anyway, but yes, we all kinds of stuff you can do with transcripts. So if you are interested in that, again, you, you know how to support us to all those ways that we've talked about. And it's always in the show notes there. And if you want to get in touch with us for any reason, we're at mailapolitics.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, and you will find links to those 
in our show notes. A special thanks to our wonderfully supportive executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Morano, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new show for you next week. We hope you'll join us.